Hello, this is the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and welcome to this week, this week's special episode where me and Lawrence Dunhill are joined by two think tank chief executives and influential voices in health policy who are both leaving this summer. Nigel Edwards, chief executive of the Nuffield Trust and Richard Murray, chief executive of the King's Fund. Nigel has led the Nuffield Trust since 2014 and previously spent 11 years as policy director at the NHS Confederation, as well as spending time at KPMG, the WHO, the King's Fund and as a hospital director. And Richard has led the King's Fund since 2019 after five years as director of policy. And he's also spent time at NHS England and before that, the Department of Health. And as I said, Nigel and Richard are both departing soon, so we thought this was a good opportunity to pick their brains, hear their reflections on policy and leadership over the last few years and ask all important questions like who has been your favourite health secretary. Thanks very much for joining us um, both. Um, I think a a good place to start is is perhaps the beginning when you started working in in the world of health policy. Um, Richard, you started engaging with it in the the early 90s, I believe. How would you characterise it at this point in time? So uh, I joined the department in 93, but but been around health policy a few years before that. To be honest, uh, you have a terrible sense of deja vu now with the 90s being a period of repeated plans to try and turn the service round, um, rising vacancies, rising waiting times and a sense slowly of drifting into ever deeper water. And I think then um, looking back over the last few years, that that, um, as I say, sense of deja vu, but not not a good not in a good way, uh, in a sense, really, of lessons not having been learnt from all those years ago and a, that sense of gloom. Um, but also, given that things did turn around after 2000, not to lose hope that it might be able to be done again. And I'm bringing you in, Nigel. What what are your kind of opening thoughts on that? Uh, very similar, really. There's, there is a pattern of, of repeating problems over, over the years. And it is, as Richard says, that it's almost like we don't learn from, from what's been going on. And, and you know, as Karl Marx says, history repeats itself first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. Um, there's a definite feeling that um, we've seen this before and, it, and often haven't learned from it. Um, and However, I would say that where we are now does feel quantitatively and qualitatively different from some of the crises we've had in the past in that it's worse it's much less clear how we're going to get out of it and there doesn't appear to be uh, a sort of a response that's commensurate with the scale of the challenge. So maybe shall we start kind of unpacking that a little bit I wonder we can kind of pull out some themes Um, what are kind of the main themes that you would kind of identify um, yeah during the last 10 years or so, perhaps. Well, I'd start uh, by making the comparison, I think, to other parts of uh, the way the United Kingdom uh, gets run and the way that we uh, think about the future is one of the recurrent themes is a lack of long term planning. Um, and whether you're looking at capital, whether you're looking at the workforce, um, uh, repeatedly, that failure to look out years. We, and by the way, I've just seen that Thames water might collapse. So this is not a problem limited to the health service in this country. It seems to be something of a British disease. The problem is for the health service, both because of workforce and because of the estate. If you don't do long term planning, you're almost certain to get into trouble. 
um, that we, we work on very, very long lead times. And so that tendency to think about the short term is almost bound to get us into 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 hot water. So one of the uh, consequences of that is there's been a whole series of patterns where problems have, have, we've sort of seen them coming that slow uh, slow motion car crash uh, but we've been very late to respond to them whether that's, that could be antimicrobial resistance uh, dentistry the crisis in general practice the shortage of workforce the growing burden of, of backlog maintenance as, as Richard was alluding to there you know that we, we we've kind of saw this coming but failed to respond and we have failed to respond often because to do so would have required to make a long-term commitment to spending and to changing the system and there's been a reluctance by both the politicians and the treasury uh, to to, to to do that there's a, i think it always been a slight suspicion that the nhs cannot be trusted to deliver these sorts of long-term plans um the treasury has a short-termism bias and as richard says it's a bit of a british disease to be short term so we've we're always too late um well not always but often too late to problems that we should have seen uh, sh should have seen coming in and i think that's related to the the problems that uh, richard alluded to if i could pick up another theme actually which is the the constant search for the ideal management structure um uh, immediately followed uh, the minute it's in place uh, by a discussion about why it's not the right answer and we need to do something about it um, almost almost immediately uh, this this seems to happen um I, I a few years ago i did a calculation about um uh, the 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 half life of commissioning level organizations in the nhs i think this was in 2012 and it's, it was it was less than 5 years um that there was a change in that level of the organization and that means that i think um, i'm making an assertion that i'm not entirely sure is true but i, I i'm pretty confident the nhs is the most reorganized health system anywhere in the developed world um and as consequence of that one one of the constant themes of my career is really talented people that i knew who were really good had a lot of knowledge would suddenly disappear they might if you were lucky reappear doing consultancy or coaching or or, or maybe they might get a job back in at some point but we lost huge amounts of talent at regular intervals over the last 20 years through through reorganization in the search for the right structure despite the fact that it's absolutely evident that is not one ideal structure that solves every problem it you're either too big to talk to primary care or too small to deal with acute hospitals or the wrong shape to deal with local authorities you just get over that and make it work but no we have to keep changing it and uh, and everyone who changed it another feature of NHS management was absolutely convinced that this time um, we've got the right structure although I think that probably wasn't true in 2012 but um, but but beyond that the enthusiasts for change were, 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 were legion and people saying are you sure about this were, were regarded as you know not sufficiently so we wasted uh, wasted huge amounts of time reorganizing things when we should have been redesigning care uh, thinking about what the patients needed supporting the staff doing some long-term planning but no we're all everyone was applying for jobs um, or being made redundant has that has that mainly been down to politicians do you think nigel or, or is there something more sort of underlying that, that's driven no, the, that constant need for reorganization the, the politicians have not helped you know the constant thing oh we got to cut management costs and we got put put more money to the front line just a particularly um uh, particularly silly mantra in, in in my opinion politicians have some blame to it but actually i would say the nhs often did this to itself you yeah, cannot you blame think, the politicians for it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And you can see some changes being done with the politicians who are nowhere near. 
uh, you, we know from the evidence from the private and the public sector that things like mergers, major structural change hardly ever provide the benefits people think that they will. Um, I think there just isn't enough grit in the NHS system to slow these changes down. They, they, they have a very low hurdle they need to get over as so we keep on launching them. It's not that they're handled any better in the private sector. They aren't. They come at enormous cost. It's just that there's enough to stop them happening that as frequently in the private sector and I suspect in other parts of the public sector as well. Uh, one thing I would want to pick out, because there is a tendency in these when you look back to end up pointing the finger at either Her Majesty's Treasury or the politicians. And of course, they have their part to play. But the number of times I've seen and the number of times I've written utterly fanciful plans that show that the available money or the available staff are going to deliver everything everybody wants that I don't think anybody in their hearts ever believes could possibly work. But they come up with endless regularity about either either the next transformation will be painless and the next reorganization of the system we've learned from the past and this one won't have everyone completely distracted applying for their own jobs but then they always turn out to do that just as they always did before uh, or that some miraculous efficiency gain means that we don't need to invest in the workforce we don't need to invest in um, uh, hospitals uh, or indeed general practice and, and we do, uh, there's something here about complicity, about playing that game of don't worry, we don't need to do all these difficult things because look, um, something's going to save us, whether it's productivity, digital, whatever. It, I mean, the, it, it, I was around in 2000 when we thought it was going to be genomics and here we are in yeah. uh, uh, more than 20 years later um, and it's it's back again after having been a bit quiet for the last 20 years. Uh, and there, so there is some, there, there is some complicity um, within the system that that allows this that that makes it easy for it to go on. I would agree with that. I mean, there's an interesting management theorist who suggests that the addiction to the structural change is a retreat uh, by managers into an area that they can control from ones they have difficulty controlling. And I have, so I think there is some attraction to that theory because actually managing clinical services is really hard, uh, whereas reorganising things is, is it takes you, abstracts you away from that difficult area. But I think this is also part of a bigger issue about the, the if you look at, uh, I think a theme over the last 20 years is, as well as the search for the perfect structure is the for a theory of change was what what is actually the model through which change is 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 led there's a fantastic article by simon stevens in health affairs which explains the thinking of him and alan milburn it, it's it's an act of the most outrageous ex post facto rationalization in 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 my view but it does he does at least say you know we tried we tried doing standards and and relying on professionalism and that didn't work very well so so then we decided we'll, we'll try you know we'll, we'll try some targets and then we thought we better try markets i mean it wasn't quite it was nothing like how he describes actually but it but it what it does illustrate is and we could add to that list andrew lansley's attempt to do markets and, and gp commissioning uh, we've had an, the modernization agency and flirting with various types of quality improvement methodology we've had payment by results uh, we've used regular various flavors of regulation and inspection um, um as well as well to go with that we've, we we can t the, the the model of ringing people up and shouting at them um is a is a 
particularly popular one, filling in large numbers of spreadsheets and collecting information for no apparent purpose. And then not, I mean, there's a whole range, I'm, I'm parodying slightly, but there is a whole range of, but virtually every tool in the management and policymakers toolkit seems to have been got out and played with. There's a few that we're not allowed to do because they're, they're not allowed within the NHS, but, but virtually everything else in the whole policy handbook has been got out because there doesn't seem to be a terribly good theory of change here. And I think that's, again, one of the, uh, one, one, one of the problems that the, uh, the system has suffered from over over the years but there have been good examples where actually people have found one um and started to make it work um uh, the, the, some of some of the work on improvement collaboratives uh, that the modernization agency did uh, the uh, the program to reduce healthcare acquired infection um declaration of interest my wife was heavily involved in that um uh, that was that was highly effective not just because she was involved but because it had a method um it was seen as important and there was an underlying theory to it um the some of the stuff we've done around cancer and cancer weights also you know very successful so I, I don't want to talk it down too much but the problem is then we didn't don't then stick at it very often um and and then we tend to take one model of change that works quite well in one area and, and then try and apply it in areas to which it is not necessarily well suited so um, healthcare acquired infection is much less complex as an intervention and trying to improve ED performance for example and and the methods have not worked so well there um but this but so I think that that theme of not really knowing how to do change being quite Simon Stevens's two big plans um, were great on what but I think they've always struggled with the how component of it um, it was just a sort of uh, my I did have a slight feeling that his view was you know I've done the clever thinking now you guys just need to go and work out how to do it um, just just on the on the sort of urge to reorganize it, do you think there's something about the, the supposed national nature of, of the NHS it, it sort of means that it's tempting to have a go at, at, at doing a big structural re reorganization because in theory you should be able to if everyone does what exactly what they're told and in the same way but the reality is the NHS is much more complicated than that there's, there's hundreds of different cultures and different teams and personalities and just by saying something in London it does not mean it's going to happen everywhere. It's interesting I, 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 is it because the NHS is national it does mean that when the NHS decides to reorganise and it's coming from NHS England or the department before or a minister that everybody falls into the same pit at the same time so uh, from you know from Cornwall to Newcastle you're all suddenly in the same mix of major reorganization and so they they they, they are kind of like an earthquake across the entire country when they come um, although interestingly Richard there's always a couple of, so Ian Carruthers in Dorset and Jim Mackey to some extent I suspect yeah. there's been some people who've, who've managed somehow to uh, to to uh, kind of put an umbrella up um, and, and in the case of Ian Carruthers almost I suspect almost pretend he was doing it but while continuing to uh, do something yeah operate as he did before yeah. I, 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 I agree uh, the bit I think uh, Lawrence, I'm not so sure as if it was all done at local level, you wouldn't just get loads of local ones, because I think insofar as my knowledge of the NHS goes back through time, it, it isn't only in the era when there was greater national control. They quite liked, you know, in the days when there was more regional control. I remember 
think it was Nick Tim saying some of them were run like little regional fiefdoms. They kept on doing it then too. I suspect right. it's something about the power of leadership. It's and it is also natural in the private sector, a bit of hubris about I know it's all failed before, but watch me, I can do it. I didn't get to where I am today by not mm. being able to do a major reorganization. And it's and, and again, it's not that private sector people don't think that too. It's just that there's more hurdles in the way to them before they can start inflicting their changes on everyone else and I think particularly if you look at some European countries where there's a greater statutory or constitutional basis for some of the service again it gives them some protection you can't just keep on launching these reorganizations over and over again um, but we don't seem to have that degree of protection. Mm. One recurring Sorry, sorry, Nigel. Go on. I was going to introduce a new theme, if that's okay. Which was, I think, there's a, another sort of theme over the twenty odd years or, or so, thinking back, which is which is quite interesting, is the relationship with the professions, because um, we're in a difficult position now. Obviously, we may have all all types of doctors on strike before, and I think it's only the associate specialists who, so far, as far as I'm aware, haven't gone on strike. Um, uh, so things are not good and actually there's been periodic i mean it, this is a periodic feature of the nhs is is the uh, is is a sort of uh, a battle with the professions alan milburn um i feel um had a very uh, Taylorist approach to thinking about how people, you know, so all the doctors are on the golf course, they're all doing private practice. We'll have a, we'll have a, a, a contract that sort of basically just, you know, um, destroyed quite a lot of the goodwill and discretionary effort that we might have otherwise got by pinning people down into job plans, by bureaucratizing the way that their work is organized, by removing autonomy and control over their workflow. And, you know, this is probably one of the, I mean, I, I, he takes some of the blame for that, but actually he's, He's, he was with the zeitgeist of how people in in other bits of the system were thinking. It's not, I think, been a success. Um, the GP contract, similarly, you know, was was based on a misunderstanding of how what work actually GPs really did. I think the BMA didn't understand what work the GPs did either. So we over we we put more money into the quaff than we should have done. We reduced, you know, we created a system of of bean counting of again a sort of feeling of you know uh, being being perhaps uh, uh, been sort of long term trend in the NHS and in other health systems to try and assert control over the work of clinicians but without really understanding I think what the dynamics of that were and what that really meant and how to do that in a skillful way that kept them engaged and and, and you know you can see local examples where people have really done that brilliantly they have they've achieved that but to some extent they've done that in spite of the uh, machinery that we've got and again I think we're back to the the problem of if you legislate for these sorts of things at the national level you know you tend to write contracts to deal with the worst rather than you writing contracts to enable the best. Um, so you write your consultant contract on the basis that, that, that those that aren't um, uh, that aren't playing golf are doing private practice. Um, then you get you get what you deserve, which is everyone watches the clock and works the hours that they said and becomes quite um, obstructive. So I think there's there's a sort of been a, a, a real failure um, uh, over this period, uh, punctuated by success, but but also, but probably with too many failures to really engage and understand 
what the professionals who work in the NHS and I've mentioned doctors, but I think this applies to other professionals as well. To, to we've we've not valued and engaged them uh, often enough, uh, skillfully enough um, over the over the course of the last twenty years, and particularly at the policy level. That the that where it's been done well, it's been done locally, done well locally generally. We've been I, I don't know Richard whether you do. Well, am I being too harsh? Maybe maybe I am, but um, I don't think so. I, I'd probably add contractual reform um, to that, almost the list of major structural change of almost always wildly um, uh, overblown expectations about what it would deliver that rapidly came to naught and left everybody feeling disappointed afterwards Yeah. Yes. Um, before they have another go. Yeah, the um, I mean, there's a general theme here, which is the um, uh, the, the um, Mike Tyson's Mike Tyson's version of the Clausewitz dictum, which is everyone has a plan until you're punched in the face. Um, that very few plans survive contact with the enemy, um, and uh, uh, that that's that's been to, to the extent we have done planning, it's not been as skillful as it should have been. I think it's been over optimism. Optimism biases mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, just going back to that point about workforce planning, Nigel, and kind of the Taylorist approach that Alan Milban has, it, still, it feels that that's still alive and well when it comes to workforce planning in the NHS in terms of sort of viewing um, staff as a, I think the quote I've seen a few times is a vessel of skills and kind of introducing new roles to fulfil yeah. specific tasks, but yeah. not thinking about proper workforce planning and um, skill yeah. mix. Um, Alison Leary from South Bank is fantastic on, yes, on this topic, um, and you know, and I think would say um, say that actually, the, you know, the UK has probably done more on skill mix than almost all, every other developed country. Although, it, to some of that is largely because we failed to in, develop the right number of staff, so we've we've kind of had to. But but again, this is sort of I think we're back to this problem about you know execution is where that you can do skill mix really badly. You know, so you introduce new roles and um, uh, Alison will tell you stories of you know, docu perfectly documenting the patient's decline in blood pressure and respirations, but without actually intervening to stop them from dying. Um, because you've t you've cut everything up into tasks, we've we've over specialised the medical work. I mean, we've also over specialised the medical workforce. So actually, you know, we we we've had this Taylorist type obsession of creating lots of tasks. But actually, while that's been happening, the needs of the patients are becoming much more complex. And and the and the fa the fact increasingly, you need people who can see the whole picture rather than just execute their their little bit of the task. Mm -hmm. So so while there is a great opportunity, there is still a great opportunity to use uh, staffing more creative ways Richard and I have been doing work for example on pharmacy recently where there's, there's there's still a lot a lot we can do there but if you don't have the management skills to do it and you don't understand the system well enough you can do some real some real harm and create jobs that dis that, that create a burden on the senior people who have to supervise all these junior people and 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 staff and, and jobs which are quite anxiety provoking and in some cases a bit hazardous so I think again we're, we're, we're back to I think a, a further theme of the uh, uh, last few years um which is we, we, you know, consistent failure to properly in, in, invest, not in leadership, where we've done loads on leadership, but actually on basic management. We've undervalued and, management and, over and, the last and, 20 years. I, don't disagree, I think the only thing I'd want to say, given uh, Ella Milburn's names in play, is that that NHS plan did kick off ultimately a decade of historic improvements in both performance in health outcomes and in 
public satisfaction with the NHS so that I think I think by the end of it, as the Commonwealth Fund said, we were rated one. We were at the top. So there is something about if we're learning from the past, uh, whatever we thought about all the things that were done. And it is incredibly difficult now to work out which ones were really the ones that made the difference. But that an enormous difference was made and the, and the firing pistol um, was that. Um, yeah. I think the depth of ambition that uh, Alan and the people around him had, uh, that they were going to turn the NHS around and and nothing was going to stand in their way. And yeah. that did leave a few bodies on the side of the road that weren't necessary. I do look back at that decade and think, well, something went right. I don't want to be leave the impression that I, 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 there are many. Alan Milburn had many strengths, undoubtedly, and his his, his vision and his ambition yeah. and his activism and his impatience, while sometimes quite difficult to be on the receiving end of, I think it is actually an example of a sort of dynamic leadership that you know is somewhat absent in the last decade. Um, and you know, despite it's, it being slightly uncomfortable, and as I say, you know, the, it wasn't all great, but but it was probably greater than. Um, sort of indifference, apathy, and uh, um, a, a failure—you know—a a failure to really understand what the job is, which has characterised some of our recent incumbents. But, um... are, there, are there any other um, individuals over the last sort of thirty years that where you fit, where you think oh, that they really did make a positive difference, actually, and bucked a lot of these negative trends that yeah. we've seen? Oh, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, I think you know, if you look locally, as I said, there's quite a lot of local leaders who've done fantastic things, very often under the radar. You know, um, you know whether that's Jim. We mentioned Jim Mackey, or you know what David Lawton's done in in Wolverhampton. I mean, it's a bit invidious to sort of uh, perhaps to name people at the national level. Um, uh, people like Mike Richards, I think, spring to mind as you know people who again some vision um some inter uh, some understanding of management and leadership a sort of focus on detail back to my sort of thing about management you know leadership's great but you do actually need yeah. people who know stuff yeah. um and he's he would he, he'd be one person one might pick out i think there, there are lots of others but um yeah and if, I, if you could have a really rather bizarre category of who's the best ex Secretary of State, just to think again about the politicians. If, as we all hope, the workforce, a long-term workforce plan is about to appear, then I do think Jeremy Hunt is hard, not, uh, surely he's bound to win that one. Uh, may not have given us a workforce plan when he was the incumbent, but he learned and he didn't forget. And, and fortunately um, ended up as chancellor uh, and it's and by doing so could remove what was one of the problems with getting a workforce plan, one of the problems, not only the problem of getting a workforce plan over the line. And if that does come out in the way that we all hope, um, and I know I'm speaking within hours of it possibly appearing, then I think he, I think if I can have the title of the best ex-secretary of state, then I think I'll probably give it to um, probably give it to yeah. Jeremy. But there are, I think, Roger Boyle as well, who did, led on the yeah. um, CBD uh, National Service Framework. If you look at the huge reduction in mortality from heart disease and the improvements in stroke, um, really uh, incredible. A real great operator, very different to Mike. But again, very talented, and that's working at the national level. And there's, I think there's a lot of examples at local level of who, people who've done great things. Good, that's interesting. Um, I, shall I ask my questions about think tanks, Annabelle, now? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, so, so I just wanted to sort of d direct the spotlight a bit a bit more on 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 you and, and ask, do you, in terms of the 
influence of think tanks and how how think tanks are viewed by the government and how they engage with you has that has that changed over over the time you, you've you've worked for them and and in in what in what ways it changed is it in a good place at the moment so if i can give a slightly uh, not quite answer it in that way i was in the department for a long time and if i compare what it's like here now to what it was like when i was on the other side of the fence so to speak it does feel quite different uh, those days the department was much bigger it had depth of people it could call on um uh, uh it i don't think it does these days and so we do find um uh they're on the phone a lot uh they do speak a lot uh, and often ask quite difficult questions and that they hope we can answer but that's comparing now to what it was like when i was uh, a civil servant when we would commission the think tanks to do things but i wouldn't, wouldn't ever have dreamt when i was director of strategy of particularly sharing what our plans were and what we we're going to want why would i bother doing that um uh whereas whereas they do engage much more with us now i think right now in the run-up to the next election i think it's trickier because everyone's thinking about what's going to happen to the nhs in the next kind of like months and I think it's hard for think tanks to come up with suggestions about what's going to happen in the next months uh, we tend to play on a longer time frame than that um, so uh, um, I, I'm I'm continually surprised and I'm sure Nigel is too that if we reach out to people they do want to meet us uh, at our request not always the Secretary of State but quite often there too um, so they must they must think they're getting something from us. And I don't think it's just because they're frightened of meeting us on the Today programme. Um, they meet much more hostile people than us. I don't know, Nigel, you've been um, you've been, yeah, yeah. Uh, you've been no. on in the think tank world longer than me. I think the, the point about the, the, the loss of expertise and, and subject matter knowledge, the subject matter experts in the civil service is a really big deal because it means that um, you know, there's a slightly different nature of the conversation you're having with people. There's still some really expert people in Angels England, for example, yeah. uh, who we've been uh, doing recently, you know, who do, who do know this. Um, uh, one of the issues with, with knowing whether you're being influential is actually that it's not always clear where ideas come from. They sort of bubble up. Um, so uh, one example is the the idea of diagnostic and treatment centres in the uh, in the early two thousands, um, which you know, suddenly was in the zeitgeist. Um, Simon Stevens has occasionally attributed that to me, but only when he th realised it was quite an unpopular policy. Um, but, you know, I really can't claim credit for it because uh, there were lots of other people talking about it. So actually being able to identify and say, well, there's one of our ideas. And there is a you know, because actually a lot of the a lot of what we're saying is our policy ideas, which are embedded in quite a complex frame of, of, of thinking about things. So actually there isn't a sort of um, you know, my general rule of, of health policy is someone says, I've got a, a what we need to do is x then they really probably don't understand the problem um and quite a lot of what we should be doing i think is is actually getting people more rigorously to examine what the problem they're trying to solve is rather than giving people prepackaged solutions um because i think if they don't understand the system they're dealing with and how it works then then there's a strong probability that their solution will not work very well um mm. so i think it's it's not quite a simple matter of of being a what's called a policy entrepreneur 
and taking out an idea. I mean, Chris Hamm, I think, gets some credit for policy entrepreneurialism in the area of integrated care to the extent that, you know, one did slightly feel that if if you told him the building was in, on fire, he'd say that what you needed was integrated care. But, the, but, but it did make him very effective as an advocate for it. And he was following the Alistair Campbell rule of, you know, never lose an opportunity to, to lobby. So there, there is quite a good example, I think, of the where, um, you know, where, where there has been some very direct influence. But it's quite hard beyond that to pinpoint it. Yeah. Do, do you feel at the moment that, that there is decent research and analysis that is feeding into policymaking that sort of more or, more or less than in the past? Or is that difficult thing to measure? Well, I, th- I think actually the, the, the department has got a lot, I don't know what Richard thinks, actually a lot better at commissioning policy research than they have in the past. And there is quite a lot of policy. You probably don't see it, but there is a lot of policy research going on. Some of it is a, a really high quality. It's become more rapid. And and I, I do know that the policymakers uh, uh, take it and use it. So um, I'm, I'm, that's one bit that seems to be going quite well. I suspect, again, that, it, oh, that might be partly because as some of the um, capacity within the civil services shrunk, yes. they've got better use at commissioning it in and so i think that it, the two might be slightly a byproduct um the area where i think there's both examples of really great work but I, I, it always seems to be incredibly difficult it's probably more in public health where some of the things you probably need to do um to using taxation and regulation you know evidence on minimum unit price of alcohol evidence on sugar tax all these different things are there but they just seem to struggle to make their well, way but it's um, always been the case that use. if you've got if you've got a research idea that that runs against the ideological prejudices of the policymakers, then you might as well forget it you, you know so yeah. you know that we're not going to decriminal despite the evidence on decriminalizing drugs for example or minimum pricing of alcohol you know the current uh, you know have that research ready but you're not going to need it for the next 18 months or so so there is a point about choosing your time for when you take your research to the policymakers. Um, Nigel you mentioned um, just a a short while earlier the lack the loss of expertise um, in the civil service and it reminded me of something similar sort of Jeremy Hunt said last week actually when he was speaking giving his evidence at the Covid inquiry he talked about how he felt the civil service had become too homogenous and there weren't enough disruptors in it and I, I just wondered wanted to put that to you I wondered what you you thought of that. Well I, I don't know about disruption I, I, I'd settled for some expertise <laughs> Actually, I mean, the problem is that, I mean, you know, Brian has made this comment to me about the uh, at our, our policy summit about the, the sort of the growth, of, the growth of generalism, the idea mm. that, you know, that, um, that you can become a, you know, that, that there are lots of generalists. So they're very smart. Um, uh, the the um, uh, I, I have to say, Jeremy Hunt complaining about what's happened to civil service, given that every time the NHS budget needed to be protected, the money was taken out of the civil service is is a little rich. Um, and and the other, I think the other point is, well, you know, if you don't have disruptors in it, then that's that's the you're the problem. It's not the civil service because you because the reason you don't have disruptors is you 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 i.e. the politicians and the people who run the civil service have created a situation in which that is not welcome. And if you hear, I mean, when you hear the politicians talk about the civil service, you would see, well, you know, actually, he says he wants that, but it's a little bit like, you know, Saint Augustine of Hippo wishing for continency and chastity, but not yet. Um, I'd be interested to know whether you think the public 
or the public's view on the NHS and their perception of care quality and what it's what it's like now and perhaps what it was like maybe pre-austerity, pre-2010? Um, I, I think that's very easy. Their, their, their views now are remarkably negative. Uh, you still get a lot that through patient surveys where it does go well, but the views of the public certainly are very negative, uh, as negative if not more than they were in the 90s. Um, and up against where we were in, it wasn't only 2010, I mean, the story started in 2010, but the system had a couple of good years after that. So it didn't begin immediately. And there was some ability to, for the service to absorb um, some of the slowdown and it managed it for a couple of years before the cracks uh, really did begin to show. I think having said that, that doesn't mean to say the public are looking to, I don't think the public are looking for the politicians to completely dump the NHS and do something completely different. Instead, they just want it to run better. So they want it to work again. Um, they, they don't, they're not crying out for something completely different. Well, it is completely different if it would work again, but uh, it's not that they're looking for charging or the, all the different things that get rolled out. They just want the government to make it work. And um, what do you think, Nigel? I, I, I think all the polling suggests that that's exactly the case. I'm, I'm just thinking over the over the the 20 years. I think the the public are are probably now more aware of what's happening in NHS. And I think you know the the NHS in the social media world feels quite different from the NHS when it was just you know the the national newspapers. Um, I have to say, I mean, the politicians probably still pay far too much attention to the national newspapers given how few people actually read them and, and how few people who read them are likely to change their mind on any of the topics that um, uh, that, that, that they're writing about but 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 um, I, I think it um, uh, we are in a difficult situation um, uh, the, the, the major hazard might well be when people start to promise improvement and then it doesn't deliver I mean one of the sort of one of the one of the, the interesting features of revolutions is they tend to happen as things are improving um, because they don't improve fast enough so actually you know uh, there's a uh, people will get very dissatisfied promises were made to make improvement the improvement may not then keep pace with what people expect and that that might be the time of maximum hazard it feels bad now but funnily enough in sort of policy terms if you don't if you don't improve quickly enough that might be even more dangerous than being a sort of pit of despair that we feel like we're sometimes in at the moment I suppose what would be the the impact of that that kind of you know that frustration gets worse if people are not seeing fast enough improvement. I think, and again, I don't want to continually hark back to history, but if you think back to 2000, the money was switched on, uh, and some of the staff began to arrive. You didn't see much for a year for about two years. It was probably about 2003 before some of the lines began to move. I think the first reaction is ministers and senior leaders getting out. The toolbox Nigel spoke about earlier on, because that's when I think a slight sense of panic that, my God, they told us what the service needed was money and staff. Well, I'm, I'm giving them money and stuff and nothing's getting any better. All that actually shows up yeah. in, if you were a treasury person, is a sharp decline in productivity that offsets all the extra resources you put in. And from that, you began to see all the kind of delivering the NHS plan of the Ministers and civil servants thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do now? Quick, uh, well, uh, let's give some more independence, foundation trusts. What about the market? What about a, a dose of performance management and uh, beginning to start pulling levers all over the place? And the bit that I think that is risky because you can create chaos as you do it. And that 
people may forget that Patricia Hewitt had a tough job reining in some of all the reform agendas to try and turn them into a coherent whole because the, despite all the money, the system slumped into a deficit that shocked everybody. Nothing like as bad now, but it did. Um, Patricia had to try and politically get this back onto one page again. And that was partly that oh, let's have another policy. And it is what also makes it so difficult to work out now when you look back what worked, because there was there was choice, there was ISTCs, there was tariff, there was foundation trust, you know, the long lists of things and ramping up performance management behind the scenes um, because of that nervousness about, oh my God, it's not happened. So I think that's what you'd see, first of all, if things didn't start to improve is continued anger from the public, particularly if there's a tax rise in there somewhere. Um, but combined by you kind of like oh my god why is it, why are the lines not going in the right direction? Um, and the slight worry that you know we, we, what we've started to see in dentistry starts being replicated in general practice and other bits, and you have a sort of exit of higher rate taxpayers to the private sector, uh, which starts to undermine the you know the legitimacy of the, the discourse about you know a publicly funded solidarity based health system i mean i think we're some way off that but, but that uh, that element of the public opinion which is people actually voting with their feet um is something that you know uh, given picking up our earlier theme of, of failing to spot trends until it's too late that would be one that we should keep an eye on it's, it seems like there's huge risk here for Labour coming in, doesn't doesn't it? Because the, the financial situation isn't going to be any different for them. It's going to be extremely difficult to increase yeah. funding substantially. And so to what extent do you think they are going to be able to deliver sort of significant improvements? I, I think... Look, if I'm they not, win, of I'm course. Not, yeah, <laughs> I'm not quite so pessimistic. Whoever wins the next election, as long, as long as there's a government with a clear majority, then you can begin to take some of those longer-term decisions that might right the system a bit. And on terms of the money, um, what was done before was a bit of layering on of capacity, particularly in staff. I think quite a few of the problems we're seeing at the moment are because we've got more of an imbalance. General Primary care has got weak in this country and we've never really been in that position before. And some of the problems I think we're seeing are because primary care is struggling um, uh, uh, to keep people well and to provide them as a as a first port of call. And then equally, I think some of the things that are going on outside of hospitaling the community, community health services in social care are weak too. And that's, as people know, clogging up um, hospitals and keeping people there longer than they need to be. The good thing is we spend so little on those ends of the service that actually you don't need that much money to give a boost to adult social care to general practice and indeed community pharmacy. I don't think it's unaffordable. It's just that we've never really done it consistently yes. before. And so what we're quite good at is recruiting an awful lot of acute sector nurses and, and consultants and doctors from other countries and putting them in the acute sector. We've not really consistently managed to support those other parts of the system. So I'm not sure it's a affordability challenge so much as a well, how do we do that? What is it? What is it we need to do to switch this around? Not cut the acute sector. I'm not suggesting that you can't cut something that's bursting at the seams. But by investing in some of the other parts of the system, take some of the heat off and, yeah, and keep I'd, people well. I would agree with that. I, mean, I think, um, you say, we, uh, even as, uh, uh, you know, um, given how much we're spending in those sectors, e even even relative what might look like relatively small amounts of money would be quite big percentage increases. Mm. 
Why do you think there has been that sort of disproportionate spending in the acute sector? Is it just because it's, oh, this is really pressured, we need to put money? It's because it's so politically visible. Mm. And, 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 you know, it's been, it has, as I know, been particularly good at special pleading. But go, I, I, I don't disagree with that, Nigel, though I think at the moment, speaking to people in the acute sector, yeah, no, no, I'm, they thinking, are so lot, I'm thinking really over the last um, 20 years rather than right now. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, you know, you can see speeches from Simon Stevens and from others uh, uh, saying who would ever thought we would have grown the acute sector and shrunk all the others who saying this around 2015 um and then we set up ring fences and targets on workforce and it's not only not stopped it's accelerated we've gone even faster in the other direction so i think there's something even deeper at play that the attempt to ring fence money the attempt to announce workforce targets for general practice worked um kept on wandering up the path towards social care reform and then shuddering back away from it again there's something uh deeper going on that is making this hard to do and i think we need to look at how these systems work what is it that what is it they do because i would make the point however grief stricken the 1990s were general practice came through it pretty okay it didn't it so this is not an inevitable product of systems under stress now you can't go back to the 1990s and invent it was a completely different system then and had its obviously had its own problems um, but it isn't inevitable um, so there's something we've done that have made this despite i think the genuine genuine attempts to move services towards mental health money towards mental health staff in mental health into the community into general practice and here we are once again ha- wondering why we haven't done it so we're thinking about this at the moment we're working on this to try and get under the the fact about it doesn't look unaffordable what seems to be hard is for us to actually do it um it may be it may be going back to that kind of wishful thinking about the plans we come up with hopelessly but wishful thinking on on what could be done and then when the whatever money is available you have to put into the acute sector because of their power and their visibility and so it's some combination of the dynamic but we're going to have to break that dynamic Lawrence, did you have a final question before we move on to our quick fire round? Uh, no, I think good to go on. We're good, good to move on. All right. Well, as as promised, um, to round off the podcast, uh, your your views on the following. So uh, we'll start with um, best single health policy. Banning smoking in public places. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with that. I think that's uh, that's probably one of the better ones. Yeah. It was supposed to be wildly unpopular that turned out to be mm. water off a duck's back. Uh, there should be a lesson to all of us about the use of regulation to improve the public's health. And then in contrast to that worst, worst oh, single health Andrew, policy. Andrew Lansley and his <laughs> 2000 and by a country mile, I think. Um, uh, it's lack of coherence. It's it it it's it, it's lack of grounding in reality. Uh, the level of disruption it caused. The the the, the sort of uh, the mistaken uh, theory of change that underpinned it, and the extraordinarily badly way it was handled in terms of the legislative process and uh, and bringing bringing people bring people on board. Um, and and capped capped, um, capped by the fact that he doesn't seem to have learned anything um, um, uh, from that at all. So I, I don't think it's a competitive, I don't know if Richard agrees, but I don't think there's anything close to that Strong in the contender. last 20 years. 
yeah. I have to admit, I was in the civil service at the time, so I probably shouldn't make a direct comment <laughs> on something that <laughs> I'm not saying my hands were on, uh, but um, I was there at the time. To be honest, I I uh, it, it, I wouldn't pick one because it's the, I would pick one, but it's um, uh, going back to something we said before. Um, the refusal by successive officials and by successive ministers and by so many people to try and confront a longer term plan for the NHS when it's so blindingly obvious the one thing that you need. And so that's not one in uh, one sole person that's failed, but one after another, after another, after another thinking this one's not for me. Thanks. So I'll... that's an act of omission rather than of commission. That's an act of yeah. omission. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Act of they, they, they did finally get round to it, didn't they, with Theresa May, but then COVID came along and sort um, of scuppered, and scuppered it all. And, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you can say the same thing about social care as well, actually, um, yeah. uh, to be honest. Um, so capital, workforce, social care, and to some extent digital, actually. I think they got mm-hmm. so badly burnt. I mean, a close contender would be MP Fit after um after Lansley I think although we have got we did get quite a lot out of it probably more than people appreciate but but just in terms of how it was implemented mm-hmm. and, and and how it was approached um national and fact program for IT is that yeah yeah national yeah. program for IT and the way it's then put people off so we actually got ridiculous you know situations now of things which probably should be done nationally and procured at national at least regional level being done by individual trusts because it's put everyone off a bit like the way that Lansley reform has put anybody else off doing anything with the uh, uh, with the NHS. So there was a there's a slight, there was a real problem with these bad policies is that they then uh, sort of toxify any further action in those areas, which um, may or may not be helpful. And as an economist, I can't help remembering and being irritated by tax subsidies on private medical insurance. Just bad waste of just a waste of money at a time when the service was desperately short of money you subsidize people who've already got pmi yeah. and yeah. if you don't put any resources into the system you do what uh, you know nigel's worried about is that you pay people to go outside of the public system you draw resources out of it uh, rather than because um, you're leaning on demand and your problem is a supply side problem yeah. and so you just stack up even more demand in the system so i i thought that was a bad one but that was a long time ago that is a very long time ago small. but it's it's a zombie policy but it's a that, zombie policy yeah keeps, don't bring it you, back it's in the yeah. telegraph at regular intervals yeah. um and it's a genuinely bad idea it's a bad idea all right next one go on lawrence uh I, I, i'm gonna stick a fresh one in um <laughs> what, what's the last thing that left you tearing your hair out or what, wanting to tear your hair out Uh, oh, <laughs> the last one that made me tear my hair out was after we came through COVID and we cancelled all the debts of trusts. They were debts, of course, because they were going to get paid back, but cancelled all the supposed deficits of trusts. So I thought there was a real chance to completely rebalance the system and have some real honest conversations about finance and money. So seeing in the HSJ how many ICBs, how many trusts were um, not uh, going to balance their books and then privately hearing from them a lot of them that they never thought they were going to but were made okay. by somebody somehow to submit numbers that um, uh, they didn't believe in and, and of course we're seeing them a lot of them slide and I just thought that was such a golden opportunity to miss and it does mean that further up the system again you get the, the NHS is given the impression of something that just can't be trusted you can't you know you, you said you were going to deliver this and you haven't um, 
uh, uh, I, and I remember the years when the Department of Health and the NHS was the part of government that delivered. It came top on delivery, crashed every other department. It said it would do 18 weeks. It did it. It said it would do four hour and A and it did it, got a bit into trouble on money and then said it would run a surplus and it did one after another reducing inequalities tick 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 so this is not again inevitable in the way that the nhs is run it is not but we do seem to have been a bit of a problem with it at the moment um uh, mine's over capital i think uh, most recently is the you know uh, the, the way the decision making process for which hospitals are in the program how that's being approached that the the fact it seems to be taking so long um, mm. that that some of the hospitals have clearly been bounced down the list for political reasons rather than for service reasons. I mean, I think the the the, the kind of politicisation of some of those decision processes is is really poor, um, and uh, kind of an ed maybe inevitable in our system, but you know, um, uh, a, a major concern. Um, my I first started doing some work with my local hospital for its reprovision twenty five years ago. You know, so some of this stuff is overdue. Yeah. Yeah, lots of hair already pulled out over that one. What about um Richard, you you already mentioned your your best health secretary. What what about you, Nigel? Would would it be would it be Hunt as well or or you fancy someone else? Well, I think uh, Richard's um, view of Jeremy was as ex-health secretary rather yeah. than um, actual health secretary. That's so, true. Uh, important. That's a very important. Uh, it's quite that's an a, important. This is a very important distinction. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like, but like John Major does appear like he might make a very good prime minister now, uh, whereas at the time you might not have thought that. Um, um, I, I mean, they've, a, a number of them have strengths and weaknesses. I, I think it's. Um, I mean, I, I, Alan Johnson was a very effective sort of uh, emollient. Um, integrating um, influence on 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 the system, um, um, and, and despite my criticisms, you know the, the energy and 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 drive of Alan Milburn brought a lot to the uh, uh, brought a lot a, a lot a lot to the uh, to, to 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 the process. I felt Patricia Hewitt was somewhat more, too much of a technocrat, um, uh, and John Reid didn't want the job, and it showed. Um, uh, so, um, and, and Andy Burnham wasn't there very long, so we we should give him a pass. But um, uh, let's put it this way: he's he's become quite. He seems to have become a better mayor than he might have been the Secretary of State. But um, he he wasn't bad, but he was in the, on the tail end of a very difficult situation politically and um economically at the time so um and it wasn't no it wasn't bad actually yeah but, uh, and i worked yeah. quite a lot with all of these people very closely when because I, I was a civil servant so i'm going to be careful what i say um what i would say is generally they're never as bad as the media makes them out to be i don't think ever that has that been the case uh, and they're mostly and I'm not going to say which ones I didn't think were genuinely motivated in the hope that they can make things better. Um, but I was interested, Nigel, you picking on Alan Johnson. I think he was an amazing combination of being quite wise and being breathtakingly charming. Um, and naturally so, not fake or creepy. And so he was very effective at what, what would have been quite a bruising time for the service before yeah. that. And peace broke out, um, uh, but, a, but a good peace. What about the worst then? I suppose that's that's going to be quite obvious from one of the earlier answers. Yeah, I stand by that answer. 
I'm not going to comment on that one. I'm not going to comment on that one. Yeah, but he agrees with me, really. I will, I will, I will, I will. I don't think it was Andrew Lansley. I think some of Andrew's strengths about his grip on workforce, I think some of the problems with the reform system that followed were because he wasn't there. Um, so he, it was a very complicated set of reforms. He kind of he was the person that understood them and designed them. But remember, he left straight after they were done. Um, and so I think all that that pain then turned out to have been slightly pointless because it the, it didn't survive. It never had the chance to last. I, I, um, I think that's like an ex-communist saying it's it, it it all works, but it was never done properly. I, I don't, I don't buy are. that one, Richard. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. I, I, I think I, his I, reform, his reforms were fundamentally flawed, and he was blind to their defects. He designed them in. He, he he thought of them as a sort of platonic construction in 2006. He never changed his mind when we ran out of money, and they were they, they were based on a a flawed understanding of how NHS works and how, in the market, and how markets operate for quasi-monopoly uh, uh, for quasi-monopoly industries but yeah. anyway um, yeah. I think on that note I'm going to conclude the longest quick fire round we've had <laughs> sorry we weren't very quick fire were we no I think, I think that was just right well thanks both so much for joining us it's been yeah. such an interesting um, conversation and um, thanks to listeners as well and do get in touch with us if there's something you'd like to see us cover yeah. or if you have a question for our team thanks, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week <laughs>